All right, well, good morning. It is the Sunday before Christmas, so we are all agitated, either with fear or anticipation, and I don't know which. How many of you, just moment of truth, how many of you would say you are on track to be ready for Christmas? Raise your hand. It's okay. You can do it. All right, how many of you are definitely not on track to be ready for Christmas? Somehow it's just going to come together. All right, how many of you don't like the people who are on track to be ready for Christmas? <laughs> Same hands. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. Uh, well, we are not at Christmas yet, but we're, we're, we're right there. We're right there, but we are still in the Advent season. And so if you've been with us at all during the Advent season here at Rio, you know that we've been spending our time in the book of Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before the birth of Jesus. And we've been going back in time, really about 730 or so years before the birth of Christ. And we've noticed three Sundays in the row, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, that Isaiah has a lot to say about Jesus long in advance. But one of the things that he says again and again and again and again is that he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And so I thought, you know what? It's the Sunday before Christmas. Let's go to the New Testament where the uniform report of the writers is, hey, you know what that guy, Isaiah, knew a lot of stuff. He was right on. And here Jesus is. And so in order to enter into the reality of that reality, I want to do something that I do personally every single Christmas at this time. Something that I do on all of our Israel trips. So if you've been on one of those trips, you already know now what I'm going to do. When we go to Bethlehem, I do this. And something I've done in this context, maybe two or three times in the last 20 or so years. Instead of going to Luke chapter 2, which I would encourage you to go to, that is the biblical account of the birth of Jesus, I want to go to a place in a book called Intimate Moments with the Savior. It's written by a pastor whose name is Ken Geyer, so it's like fire, okay, but with a G. And what he does is he creates an imaginative rendering of the story of the birth of Christ. He does it in a way that is faithful to the biblical text and story, but he also incorporates a lot of what we now know through archaeology and, and about the culture and about the people. And he sits down with a very creative, thoughtful heart, and he, he imagines the whole thing and writes this and gives it to us. So I want you to use your imagination, which might be a bit of a stretch, you know? I mean, for a lot of us, particularly us adults, it's been a long time since we've used our imagination. If you don't remember what it is, it's that thing, it's that faculty that God has given to you that allowed you when you were a kid to take like a big box and make it a spaceship. That's it. Wherever that thing is in you, dust that dude off, plug it in, wake it up, and put it to use. Because I want you to see this in your mind and then feel it in your heart. It's a story that begins with a census in the Roman Empire. Pastor Geyer says this. He says, for the census, the royal family has to travel 85 miles. Joseph walks. While Mary, nine months pregnant, rides side saddle on a donkey, feeling every jolt, every rut, every rock in the road. By the time they arrive, the small hamlet of Bethlehem is swollen from an influx of travelers. The inn is packed, people feeling lucky if they're able to even negotiate a small space on the floor. And now it's late and everyone is asleep. There is no room. But fortunately, the innkeeper is not all shekels and mites. True, his stable is crowded with his guests' animals. But if they could squeeze out a little privacy there, well, then they were welcome to that. Joseph looks over at Mary, whose attention is concentrated on fighting a contraction. We'll take it, he tells the innkeeper without hesitation. 
And the night is still when Joseph creaks open the stable door. As he does, a chorus of barn animals make discordant note of the intrusion. The stench is pungent and humid, as there have not been enough hours in the day to tend the guests, let alone the livestock. A small oil lamp lent them by the innkeeper flickers to dance shadows on the walls, a disquieting place for a woman in the throes of childbirth. Far from home, far from family, and very, very far from what she had expected for her firstborn. But Mary makes no complaint. Frankly, it's a relief to just finally get off the donkey. She leans back against the wall, her feet swollen, her back aching, her contractions growing stronger and close together. Meanwhile, Joseph's eyes dart around the stable, not a minute to lose, quickly. A feeding trough would have to make do for a crib. Hay would serve as a mattress. Blankets, blankets. Not his robe, that would do. And those rags hung out to dry would help. A gripping contraction doubles Mary over and sends Joseph racing for a bucket of water. The birth would not be easy either for the mother or for the child. For every royal privilege for this son ended at conception. A scream from Mary knifes through the calm of that holy and silent night. And Joseph returns breathless, water sloshing from the wooden bucket just in time to see that the top of the baby's head has already pushed its way out into the world. Sweat pours from Mary's contorted face as Joseph, the most unlikely midwife in all Judea, rushes to her side. However, the involuntary contractions are not enough, and Mary has to push with all her might, almost as if God were refusing to come into the world without her help. Joseph places a garment beneath her, and with a final push and a long sigh, her labor is over. The Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal. Light skin as the pigment would take days or even weeks to surface. Mucus in his ears and nostrils wet and slippery from the amniotic fluid. The son of the most high God umbilically tied to a lowly Jewish girl. The baby chokes and coughs, and Joseph instinctively turns him over and clears his throat, and then he cries, and Mary bares her breast and reaches for the shivering baby. She lays him on her chest, and his helpless cries subside as his tiny head bobs around on the unfamiliar terrain. This will be the first thing the infant king learns, and Mary can feel his racing heartbeat as he gropes to nurse. Deity nursing from a young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling? or more profound. Meanwhile, Joseph sits exhausted, silent, full of wonder. Until the baby finishes in size, the divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds. And then for the first time, his eyes fix upon his mother's. Deity straining to focus. The light of the world squinting. Tears pool in her eyes as she touches his tiny hand and hands that once sculpted mountain ranges cling to her finger. She looks up at Joseph, and through a watery veil their souls touch. He crowds closer cheek to cheek with his betrothed, and together they stare in awe at the baby Jesus, whose heavy eyelids begin to close. For after all, it has been a long journey, and the king is tired. And so with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity without protocol and without pretension. Where you would have expected angels, there were only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys and 
a few haltered cows, a nervous ball of sheep, a tethered camel, and a furtive scurry of curious barn mice. Except for Joseph, there was no one to share Mary's pain or her joy. Yes, there were angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collared shepherds. And yes, a magnificent star shone in the sky to mark his birthplace. But only three foreigners bothered to look up and follow it. And so it is that in the little town of Bethlehem, that one holy and silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. It's beautiful. God made man. You know, I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to you know, have to answer to the Lord for how few lessons I draw out of this story. It's a story of the infinite God who actually becomes God-made man, who becomes Emmanuel, as we've talked about. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor, the Almighty God who becomes a baby. He's an infinite God, guys. There has to be like an infinite number of lessons. And I know I'm going to get there and he's going to go, Tom, what about this one? I'm going to go, oh, and he's going to say, what about this one? I'm going to go, oh, he's going to say, what about this one? I'm going to be like, I don't know, Lord, you're right. I I, I missed that one. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you four points. Maybe the most obvious ones. And the first thing that I want you to learn from this story is is that our God is a God who's in charge of everything and everyone. And, And I think that that is a really helpful reality. I think we look around at our world and we just go, what in the world is going on here? You know, and that's the nice way of saying it, isn't it? I mean, really, we have banished common sense. We celebrate mental illness and normalize it. We look around at this world and it looks like evil is winning. You know, we call evil good and good evil and all of this stuff. And it's like if somebody's in charge of all of this, it can't possibly be God or so it seems. And yet again and again, as we make our way through all of the stories of the Bible, and this one in particular, we see a God who is sovereignly in charge of absolutely everything, including even evil, and that he ultimately uses it for his good plans and purposes. It's remarkable. He's remarkable. We see it in the details of this story. I mean, you know, one of the things I pointed out at the beginning is it's a story that begins with a census. And it's a census that disrupts the entire Roman world, although it has only one purpose. And it is not the purpose of Caesar Augustus, who is the emperor of Rome, who decrees it. Caesar Augustus' real name was Octavian. He was given the name Augustus by the Roman Senate. It means majestic one, revered one, honored one. Okay, so why is that such a big deal? Because before it was given to him by the Roman Senate, it was used only in reference to the gods. Archaeologists have discovered inscriptions about Caesar Augustus that refer to him as a son of a god or as the savior of the world. He had a new world order, this whole program that he initiated and brought in. And he was pretty amazing. You know what he called it? The gospel. That might sound a little familiar. As of the date of the story that I just read, the date of the birth of Jesus, Caesar Augustus' birthday marked the end of one year and the beginning of the next. It was New Year's Day. 
year after year after year, dividing one year from the next, year after year after year. What is the Lord doing? Because, I mean, if you step back from that for a second and go, okay, so who's really in charge here? You realize that God is using this man not just to declare a census, which we'll get to in a second, but he's using this man to introduce all of these categories of thought in advance of Jesus so that people might understand these ideas of a true son of God, of a true savior of the world, one who comes not just with a new world order, but in the end who brings an entirely new world. One whose birth date for a long, long time now has divided not just one year from the next, but B.C. from A.D. He divides all of history. It's remarkable. Guys, he is the one who is in charge of all things, including the census. You know, Octavian thought that he was declaring the census so that he could increase his tax revenue. That's the point of a census. I want to increase my tax revenue and I want to recruit more soldiers. So let's declare a census. The real reason that he declared the census, completely unbeknownst to him, but we're able to see this and know this, is because the prophet Micah, 700 years before Jesus was born, had declared that Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem, and Mary and Joseph, for whatever reason, did not get the memo. Like, they had no plans to go to Bethlehem until Augustus declares the census that then requires everyone, wherever you're at in the Roman Empire, to travel to the city of your ancestral roots. Where does your family trace its heritage to? Oh, that city? Well, that's where you get to go next. You're welcome. And for Bethlehem, or I mean for Joseph, that was the city of Bethlehem. God is in charge of everything and everyone. And when we get in touch with his heart, here's what that allows us to do. It allows us to look around and then to breathe. To realize that it's not out of control. It's all working out the way that he planned it. And that's good news. But not only is he in charge of everything and everyone, if you continue just thinking it through, he's enfolding even the most disruptive and confusing details of our lives into his beautiful plans and purposes. And I say that because when we look at this story from the vantage point of 2,000 years after the fact, we look at this story and the, you know, the donkey ride and the nine-month pregnant and the Bethlehem and all that stuff, and we're like, oh, it's so beautiful. Okay, how do you think Mary and Joseph experienced this? Because I'm not thinking beautiful was a word that they came up with in this moment. Why? Because they're experiencing it the way we experience life. In real time, one moment at a time, and they hear about this census, and all they can think about is the fact that Mary, who is nine months pregnant, like she is right about ready to have the baby, which, by the way, also happens to be the Son of God, so that sort of raises the temperature a bit is now going to have to get on a donkey. She's going to ride 85 miles to the city of Bethlehem, where obviously they knew no one, had no friends or relatives. Why? Because they had nowhere to go. You know, at a time where it's going to be swollen from an influx of travelers, like Ken Geyer says, hard to get a room. And, you know, it's not like back then you could go online and book a you know room on like Priceline or, you know, pick up your phone like a caveman or something and call, actually call a hotel. Couldn't do any of this stuff. And they knew it was going to be expensive and they were poor. And how mortified do you think they were when they finally arrived and then they realized not just that they were going to give birth to Mary's firstborn son. That would be mortifying enough, but that they were going to give birth to God's son in a barn. I'm thinking Joseph felt like a total failure. Oh, I can't believe it. This is the best I can do. It's tough. 
we look at their story, you know, and, and we're like, man, it's amazing. You know, they looked at their story and like, what the heck is going on here? Which is a question I think we regularly ask. We look at our story. We're like, what the heck is going on here? And God's like, you know, this story, right? And like a hundred other ones in the Bible. Now's not the time to panic. Now's not the time to measure the story. Now's not the time to expect to be able to understand it. That comes when? Later. Like this story is teaching us that someday it's coming. Hopefully it won't be 2,000 years from now, you know. But someday is coming in which God that we can trust is going to say, all right, now let's look back on it. Okay, you didn't think this was going to work out, right? You didn't think anything good could come of this, right? And you thought, oh, come on, this is a disaster. No way, not even God. Wait a minute, that's the problem. Not even God is great enough to bring good out of this. He's like, the day is coming and you'll see it. And you'll realize then that I'm greater than you think now. It's pretty awesome. So the story teaches that, okay, God is in charge of everything and everyone. And he's enfolding even the most disrupting and, and, and confusing details of our lives into his beautiful plans and purposes. But then thirdly, it teaches that our God is a God who's pleased to be born in the most lowly of places. And we know that because, again, Jesus is born in, in a stable, you know, full of animals and, and everything an animal produces. Manure, slop that they eat. I guess they don't produce that. That produces the manure, right? But the flies and the smell and all of it, it's all there. Then the manger that he's placed into, I mean, this isn't like some sterile plastic thing that you see at the mall. This, this isn't even like a nice wood box, you know, and sometimes you see that with the crisscross legs and the fresh hay. I'm telling you, like some of the mangers I see, I, I feel like I could take a nap in. You know, you're like, that looks, that looks amazing. I'm just a little concerned for the size because, I mean, to be honest, I've got a five-foot-long body pillow, and then I've got my chiropractic pillow, and then I've got my buddy pillow. That's my squeeze pillow, you know, that I... And now I have a weighted blanket. How many of you have a weighted blanket? Yes. They are glorious. So Merry Christmas. What they put him in was a stone container hewn out of solid stone. No drain. That's food get for the animals just kept getting put into day after day after day after day. And it's not like, you know, they had the ability to like vacuum it out and get out the Clorox wipes and, you know, shoot it down with, you know, antiseptic spray. And I, no, they just grabbed whatever they could get and they stuffed it with the cleanest stuff that they could find, I'm sure. And then they put him there. I think maybe the most encouraging part of this whole story is that God is a God who is pleased to be born in the most lowly of places. And I say that because the manger, because the stable, because the barn is a picture of every one of our hearts. Just whether you realize it or not is the issue. It is, in fact, a picture of every one of our hearts. And by the way, it wasn't a barn like you see in rural Georgia. It was a cave. They would take caves, and you can go to the caves. I've been in the caves. You go to the caves, they took the caves, and they would just pen them up, and they would use them as sort of a natural enclosure. You get the idea? I don't have to build a barn. We've got a bunch of caves over here. We'll, just, we'll put the sheep here. We'll do this. We'll do that. That's the idea. Caves are hard, caves are cold, caves are dark and unforgiving. Well, let's be honest. In this case, caves were full of things that were tame and untamed, and in both cases produced manure. 
flies, smell, stuff. You know, I think oftentimes we look at our lives and we think, man, I got to get cleaned up to come to Jesus. And he's like, have you seen where I was born? I mean, like everything about my story from the beginning is suggesting that no, I come and I'm born there. And my presence is what cleans you up. It makes you holy. Anyway, that brings us to the fourth and final point, which is that the good news of our God is not meant to be kept to ourselves. And that's a point best made through the example of the shepherds. Will read about the shepherds. What do the angels do? We just lit their candle. They announce the birth of the Savior. Good news of great joy for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the shepherds, what do they do? They go, wow, all right, well, that's cool. Go back to work, you know, I mean, I'm doing whatever a shepherd does. No, they're blown away by that. Listen to what they do. In Luke 2, beginning in verse 16, it says that the shepherds then went with haste. They're energized. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw him, they made known the saying that had been told them by the angels concerning this child. He's the Savior. Christ the Lord. And all who heard it, Mary, Joseph, anyone else in Bethlehem who would listen, wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned to their sheepfolds, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them, which is where we'll end the story today. But what have we learned? Well, I mean, just to review, I think we've learned that our God is a God who is in charge of everything and everyone. And the closer you get to him and the better you get to know him and the more that you can trust his heart, the more freely you can just kind of breathe in the midst of that. No matter what's going on. That he is the God who is unfolding even the most disruptive and confusing details of your life into his beautiful plans and purposes. I don't know what those details are for you. I don't. I really don't. All I know is that a day is coming. And that's a little frustrating, right? So like, I got to wait. Yes. A day is coming in which you'll be able to look back and say, Lord, I underestimated you. You were not great enough to me to trust you in all of this. You are great enough to bring something good, something positive, something whatever, beautiful, out of even this. The call is to stop underestimating the Lord and to entrust these things to him and say, look, you know, I can't fix this. It's out of my control. I don't like this, just going to be honest. I'd like to have that day, you know, that we're talking about, like, can that be tomorrow? Can it be today? That would even be better. 2,000 years, how about two minutes? Can we just get to it now? But I don't get to choose that because that's part of what he's orchestrating. The timing even is beautiful in the end. But we take these things, we entrust them to him. I think we've seen that our God too is a God who is pleased to be born in the most lowly of places. And then instead of staying away from God because of all the wild stuff in here, we need to realize that that's what qualifies us to come to him in humility and go, yep, I got nothing. Only you can make me pure. Only you can take the cave of my heart and make it a cathedral of worship. And that's what he does again and again and again and again. He majors in that. Surrender your heart to him. If you've never done that, you can do that today. We'll be up here after the service, really. Love to pray with you, talk with you. If you're like, yeah, I'm not quite sure that I'm ready to do that. That's what Alpha is all about. It's what Will was telling you.
It's a great opportunity to just begin that journey and begin that conversation in a place where, you know, you're not going to be argued with and you're not going to be pushed and pressured. And you're really going to be able in a community of people that you become friends with to work stuff out. So we'd invite you to sign up for that online. But then lastly, the good news of our God is not meant to be kept to ourselves. So the last couple of weeks I've been saying, hey, how does a Christian family, a church like this works? We all have different roles. And our role up here is equippers. Our role up here is opportunity givers. Our role is resourcers, hopefully inspirers. And man, you've got two great opportunities in Christmas Eve and an alpha to take one of these cards that was on your seat and to give it to somebody and just say, hey, look, I'd, I'd love for you to come to church with me on Christmas Eve. It's always fun whenever we put cards on every seat because there's like five people who will walk in and go, where am I supposed to sit? You know, so I'm like, you got to pick up the card and then you put it here and then you can sit there. It's wonderful, but you need to give it away. Give it away. It's a wonderful thing. So God is in charge of everything and everyone. (sighs) Breathe. He's taking the crazy stuff even and he's enfolding it into a beautiful plan and purpose. So then trust him with it. He's pleased to be born in the most lowly of places. Recognize that that's you. And ask him to be born in you. And then go share him. This is not meant to be kept to ourselves. Oh, man. It's like the shepherds. They're like, we're telling everybody, you know, you can listen or not, but you're going to hear it. How wonderful is that? Be filled up with that and go out and do that. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you that, um, God, you have condescended to come to us. We praise you for the way that you have done it in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word, which faithfully gives to us the account of your heart, of all of the things that you have done to make us your own. And we are ever so grateful that we do not need to get cleaned up to come to you because we can't get cleaned up enough. But instead, that it is your presence that makes us holy. Lord, give us faith to deal with the chaos of the world as we look around it. Give us a bigger vision of who you are. Let us put our trust in you and know the peace that passes understanding. That which you speak of in your word that you offer to those who believe in you, who trust in you, who walk together with you. God, let us take these painful things of life that are terribly confusing, disorienting, disillusioning, and we all experience them in different moments. And let us entrust them to a loving Heavenly Father who loves us so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die for our sin that we might be His sons and daughters. And let us trust You too with the timing. And then, Lord, I pray that You would make us Your messengers. Give us a holy boldness. Fill us with, if you will, with the spirit of the shepherds who hear the message and then just deliver it and guide the deliverance of it into the lives and hearts of the people in our life. Do these things, Lord, that they too might know your joy. We praise you, God, and we are grateful for you. In Jesus' name, amen.